one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Pros. Casper, I just got a wonderful, wonderful haircut. It looks so good. Thank you. I feel great with it. But I cut off over a foot of hair, and that means my long hair was sort of pulling my curls in one way. And now that I have short hair, I need a totally different hair care routine. Mm. Luckily, Pros is made for people not hair and skin types. Personalization is rooted in everything they do, from their in-depth consultation to their made-to-order model. And so I use the review and refine feature, and I was like, yes, I still want vegan hair care products. Yes, I still want to smell like a lavender field, (laughs) but my hair is no longer long. It is short to medium length. Please send me a different formula of shampoo and conditioner. Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin that they're offering an exclusive trial offer of 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash Harry Potter. So you get your free consultation and then 50% off at pros.com slash Harry Potter. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash Harry Potter. Chapter 8. Flight of the Fat Lady. In no time at all, defense against the dark arts had become most people's favorite class. Only Draco Malfoy and his gang of Slytherins had anything bad to say about Professor Lupin. Look at the state of his robes, Malfoy would say in a loud whisper. I'm Casper Terkyle. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. When I lived in Berlin for a year, I loved going to all the different museums. And, of course, very famously, there's the Holocaust Memorial and the museum that's attached to it right in the center of the city. And so often in museums that commemorate the Holocaust, it's overwhelming, the stories, the figures, the data. But I was really struck by this one part of the exhibition that has really stayed with me, which was this big black notice board with very dark lighting and just one piece of white paper with a spotlight on it, which was crumpled and had some writing on it. And it was a short letter written by a young woman who was being transported to Auschwitz. And she had taken this piece of paper and thrown it out of the moving train in the hope that someone would find it, you know, perhaps landing somewhere in a field or a little town that they went through. And I can't think of a more desperate act, you know, knowing that you are going to face probably your death and this last fling of hope to fling out this piece of paper 
But when I read the letter, it was completely against what I thought it would be. It was calm. It had a peaceful finality to it that seems to me so antithetical to what I think desperation is all about. And as we read this chapter through this theme of desperation, it made me think that maybe I misunderstood what it is to be desperate. So I, I want to read you the letter just so you have a sense of what I read. My dear Maman, I left Drancy yesterday, and at this moment I am in the train. We are moving in the direction of Metz, but I don't know whether we will stop there, since they say that the journey will last for three days. I have much courage. This is a bad period to go through. I am absolutely sure that I will see you again, my dear Mama, in a few months. You must stay very brave. You must not be sad. At this moment I am with friends from Poitiers. I will always manage one way or another. I think that I will not be able to write to you, but don't despair. I am always thinking of you. Don't abandon yourself to distress. My morale is very strong. I have plenty of courage and hope. I embrace you affectionately. I hope I see you soon. Don't despair. Nana. It makes sense to me that that piece of paper is something that stuck with you, given that it seems to embody the hope and humanity that can be found in moments of abject desperation. I resist trying to make meaning out of tragedy. I feel like tragedy should just sort of stand on its own, but that visual of that piece of paper and that letter is really challenging how inspired I let myself feel in the face of desperate things. So Casper, sometimes the only thing you can do in the face of desperation is something really silly. Would you like to embark on the 30-second recap with me? Yes, feels a little misplaced, but here we go. <laughs> yeah, it's an awkward transition. Three, two, one, go. Everyone loves Lupin except Draco because he's Draco, and they start Quidditch practice. And then the Hogsmeade trip is happening, and Harry is really bummed because he doesn't get to go to Hogsmeade. Ron is like, let's ask McGonagall one more time. Hermione's like, you guys are idiots. He shouldn't come. Um, the cat is attacking the rat a lot, and that's bad. Crickshanks and Scabbers are getting into a lot of fights, and Ron is really mad at Hermione. And then Pavardi's, um rabbit dies, and Hermione's like, Trelawney's an idiot. And then they go to Hogsmeade, and they come back, and the fat lady has been attacked by a serious black. That was a solid 31-second recap. Well done. That extra second was so that I could make sure that animals also have their proper names. Well, that's true. I mean, there are a lot of rats and cats in this book, so it's important to clarify. It was a gesture toward the inherent worth of animals. Are you ready? Let's have a go. Okay. On your mark. Get set. Go. So Harry really wants to go to Hogsmeade and like everyone's excited because there's Zonko's joke shop and all of the sweets and things. And so they all go and, you know, Malfoy's being annoying and Pavati is freaking out and um, Trelawney is predicting all sorts of things and they've come true and ah. But um, Harry is on his own in the castle and so he goes walking and Lupin finds him and like takes him in for a cup of tea and they have a chat and like uh, Harry opens up about, you know, the fact that he was scared about the thing and um, Dementa and but then Snape comes and there's a potion and Harry's like, don't drink it. But he doesn't say anything. And then the end. I do like that we've transitioned into this partnership of if one of us misses a scene, the other one picks it up. It's a collaborative model, friends. <laughs> Who needs competition when you can collaborate? The first place where I really saw desperation in this chapter, Vanessa, was Harry wanting to go to Hogsmeade. You know, the whole chapter was really built up around the trip. The students are getting excited. Malfoy's teasing him that he can't go because he's scared of Dementors. And... 
the thing that struck me about Harry's desperately wanting to go was that for him, it makes the other problems around him fade away. You know, we see this big conflict between Hermione and Ron. And so, you know, there's all of this conflict and, and drama around him. And the Harry is just like zoned out. They bring it into the classroom. They're sitting on either side of him. They're not talking to each other. And Harry's just like, I'm sad because I don't get to go to Hogsmeade. And so for me, that was something in that, like the idea that desperation just gives you tunnel vision and everything else fades into irrelevance. I think that that is right. And I think the isolation is a huge part of it. The, like, sort of physical embodiment in my everyday life of desperation is when you see, like, a tired kid on the subway just losing it, right? They don't even know what they're desperate for, but it is desperation in, like, a three-year-old's body. And part of it is that they can't communicate what it is that is upsetting to them. And I think that that feeling of isolation makes them inconsolable, One component of desperation is that you feel like nobody else understands you and therefore nobody else can help you. And that's just not three-year-olds. Like, that's me, age 14, listening to the Les Mis soundtrack, pining over boys in the class above me. You feel inconsolable and you feel like no one understands. When I was about seven or eight years old, Joe Biden gave this amazing speech about when his wife and daughter were killed in a car accident. He was talking about some sort of safety regulations, and he was saying even though so many other people have lost people in car accidents, nobody else understands the pain that I had. And whenever anybody would come up to me and say, I've also lost a child, I understand, the feeling inside me was, no, you don't. I think that desperation sometimes feels like a shield in that way of like, let me feel desperate because I'm not ready to reconnect with the rest of the world yet. So I would like to hold on to this isolation because if I'm connecting with people again, that means that the tragedy doesn't have the same weight on my soul. That is fascinating because what we see in this chapter is this exact thing happens. He goes for a meal in the Great Hall and there's Colin Creepy who's like, hey, Harry, come sit with us, which is super sweet, right? It's like, it's thoughtful. It's like, oh, he's on his own. Maybe he wants to have company with us cool second years. And Harry's like, no. And so much so does not want to do it that he leaves the Great Hall and skips the meal and he just starts walking aimlessly. But here's what's interesting, I think. Then Lupin encounters him and what Colin couldn't do in, in establishing that connection, Lupin does. So like, what's happening there? Why is Lupin different? Like, how does he get through that desperation shield? I wonder if part of why Lupin can draw Harry in is just, like, no fatigue. So we see Colin invites him to hang out, and he's like, no, I don't want to do that. And then Filch interacts with him, and he's like, I don't want to interact with you. And then Filch is like, go back to your common room. And Harry doesn't want to go back to the common room. And Lupin's just, I think that, yes, it's somebody who Harry respects more and likes more, and therefore, because of the authority difference, you know, is more inclined to say yes to for all of those reasons. But I also think that sometimes in a bad way, you get beaten down with just the number of requests that eventually you say yes. I wonder if part of the reason why Harry says yes here is because he's so desperate that he's just exhausted. Like the last thing that he can drudge the energy to do is to say no to a kind teacher. That's interesting. I think I read it differently because 
Lupin says, why don't you come in? I've just taken delivery of a Grindelow for our next lesson. And to me, he's offering Harry a path into a different emotion. Like, he's sparking Harry's curiosity. So it's not like he's directly engaging the loneliness and isolation and desperation in the way that Colin is, which is like, hey, come sit with us because you're obviously on your own. He's like, oh, come and look at this interesting thing with me. I don't know. I feel like one of the things I remember learning is that when you're sad, learning is one of the best ways out. I remember I broke both my ankles and like I was in bed for three months and I got a letter from my grandmother that said, when I was 14, I broke my wrist and I learned Italian. Make sure you use the time. You know, and everyone else is there being like, oh, I'm so sorry. And my grandma was like, whatever, like get on with something interesting. There's so much going on actually in this chapter. What are the other spots where you see desperation as a theme? I mean, it's such an interesting room, right? The office of the professor who wants to teach defense against the dark arts has to have a lot of dark materials in their office in order to teach how to defend against it, right? So there's so much darkness in this room. And then what's so interesting is when Snape comes in and brings this potion to Lupin. And Snape is, like, so begrudging about it. And, like, Lupin, out of a sense of such desperation, A, has to have Snape help him, and B, has to drink something that's so gross-tasting that he's choking it down. It just reminded me of people with cancer, like, having to endure chemotherapy, which is poisoning your body and often can make you feel worse than the cancer makes you feel. But out of a sense of desperation, you're willing to poison yourself in order to make yourself better in the long run. And the fact that it's from Snape, right? Like, and they have such a difficult relationship. You know, it's an act of desperation to have to ask an enemy or someone you you find difficult to be around with for help. Then you know it's really real. And to be gracious to them while they're helping you and not begrudging at all. I will say I really hate Snape, and I'm just going to dig my heels in on that, and I will endure your hate mail, my dear friends. But Snape is sort of classy about this interaction. He's like, I made you a whole vat. You should probably drink that right now. If you need more, I have more. He brings it to Lupin. I'm guessing that Lupin isn't very steady on his feet right now, so Snape delivers it to him. I'm actually impressed with how generous Snape seems to be about this. So I just have a silly little small moment, which is that when they're talking about going to Hogsmeade, Ron is like, yay, honeydukes, and Hermione is like, yay, nerdy things. And then George is like, oh, good, I'm out of, like, stink pellets or something that he needs from Zonko's. And that just reminded me of the moments in which I say things that are totally insensitive, but that I mean completely passionately. Like, I am exhausted. I only got six hours of sleep last night. Or I'm starving. I haven't eaten in eight hours. And so I feel like sometimes we feel desperate for these very, like, privileged reasons. And I'm wondering why we, like, perform such dramatics around desperation when we're not actually desperate. Right. Well, I feel like there's these kind of gradations of desperation. And it kind of comes back to that first point I was talking about with Harry, where, you know, when you're really desperate, everything fades to the sidelines. And it's easy to use the language of desperation when actually we're just fine. Like a little delay in some stink pellets, George and Fred, you know, you guys are going to be fine. Yes, I think maybe I'm grasping for straws. I'm desperate for an illustration of my point. And George doesn't use the word desperate, right? George is not desperate for stink pellets. He's just sort of like performing this, oh, thank goodness. 
But I just wonder how we, like, rank other people's desperation. I mean, even Harry's desperation is sort of silly. He's, like, desperate to go to town. He just spent a week in Diagon Alley by himself. His two best friends are really fighting and are really hurting each other's feelings. And he has tunnel vision about Hogsmeade. I'm not on board with that. I think if we look at the definition for desperation, there's something helpful for us here. Because what I find here is that desperation is a state of despair, typically one that results in rash or extreme behavior. And so I think when we say I'm desperate for a chocolate bar or something, that's a ton of phrase. But like if I'm going to try and like break down a vending machine, then I'm really desperate. So I think it's in our behavior that we see if that language is valid. Does that make sense? That makes complete sense. So I wonder if certain people are more predisposed to feeling desperation because there are people who will shake that vending machine faster than others. But also there are just certain triggers, right? So Hermione might not be so upset about not being able to go to Hogsmeade, but Harry has like a deep fear around being left behind and isolation. And so I think maybe on a rational level, he might think it's silly to be so sulky about this. But we see later in the novels, he gets very desperate about going to Hogsmeade, even though the thing he is most scared of in the world is Dementors. He puts on the invisibility cloak and goes into Hogsmeade in just a few chapters, right? Like he acts very desperately about this. So fine, I don't judge Harry as much. He is feeling really desperate and alone and sad and scared. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Prose. Casper, I just got a wonderful, wonderful haircut. It looks so good. Thank you. I feel great with it. But I cut off over a foot of hair, and that means my long hair was sort of pulling my curls in one way. And now that I have short hair, I need a totally different hair care routine. Mm. Luckily, Prose is made for people not hair and skin types. Personalization is rooted in everything they do, from their in-depth consultation to their made-to-order model. And so I use the review and refine feature, and I was like, yes, I still want vegan hair care products. Yes, I still want to smell like a lavender field, <laughs> but my hair is no longer long. It is short to medium length. Please send me a different formula of shampoo and conditioner. 
Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin that they're offering an exclusive trial offer of 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash Harry Potter. So you get your free consultation and then 50% off at pros.com slash Harry Potter. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash Harry Potter. Casper, where else should we look in the text to investigate this theme? Well, one of the fun things about this chapter is that actually the word desperate shows up twice in the text itself, which, again, is totally unplanned. And it's just a delight when it happens. And one of the times is when Oliver Wood is giving a like team speech. And it's his final year as a student at Hogwarts. And text tells us that there was a quiet sort of desperation in his voice as he addressed his six fellow team members in the chilly changing rooms. And Oliver's really saying, like, this is our last chance. And then he corrects himself and says, my last chance to win the Quidditch Cup. And there's this manic glint in his eye, which to me really spoke about the danger of desperation. I think it links back to what we just said about rash behavior. At this point, like, Oliver is going to do whatever is necessary. Like, he is going to make some rash decisions, including, like, making these poor students practice over and over and over again. And there's something dangerous that I want to point to in desperation. There's something that is non-rational that could hurt people. And that is completely self-absorbed. I mean, like, Harry isn't noticing what's going on with Ron and Hermione. Wood is like, this is the last chance that Quidditch will ever happen in the history of the world. And even goes on to be a professional Quidditch player. So it's, like, not even true. But, I mean, it's a cliche, right? Desperate times call for desperate measures. There's a feeling that when you feel desperate, you are literally called to do whatever it is that you have to do in order to get something done. I mean, one thing that is interesting is that his kind of manic desperation actually draws out a very sweet moment. He's kind of going all in with this hyperbolic language. And the twins, Fred and George, can really see that this is meaningful to him, right? So they and Angelina start saying these really, like, encouraging words. And to me, there is a little foreshadowing of the kind of teamwork that we're going to see in the fight against Voldemort. It's a collaborative form of leadership that is really stepping up to meet Oliver where he's at. Because, and this is so true with sports teams, you know, often you're not really playing for the win, you're playing for each other. And I think that's beautiful. So in some way, that desperate need that Oliver has kind of unlocks this really touching moment. No, I think desperation creates tunnel vision. But another word for that, as we were talking about earlier, is clarity and clarity of purpose. And I mean, this is one of the only sincere moments that we see Fred and George have. And I do think that seeing Oliver's desperation makes it clear to them that they care about him and that they're like, okay, you're being ridiculous, but if this feels important to you, like, we'll step up. And I just think about moments in which people really go out of their way for one another. I think there is a sense of desperation on one another's behalf and that that can make your morality and your values and what it is that you're willing to put on the line very clear to you. Casper, you mentioned that we see the word desperate twice in the chapter. I only noticed it that once. Where else did you see it? It's kind of hiding in plain sight because it's actually the word desperately, but I feel like that's legit, right? That counts. So Hermione says to Harry, you know, because he's freaking out, we'll bring you lots of sweets back from Honeydukes, said Hermione, looking desperately sorry for him. You know, I'm not sure how much this adds to our analysis of this theme, but there is something uncontrollable about desperation, right? Like, she's just desperately sorry. Like, she wants to be able to do something, but she can't control what's happening. 
I don't know. Does that make sense? So Hermione, I usually think of as the most empathetic person in the entire world. Uh-huh. But I think it's interesting that neither she nor Ron offers to stay with their desperately sad friend, Harry. You're making a face like you think I'm crazy. I would never do that. It's Honeydukes. It's Zonkos. You don't stay behind. Really? If I were, like, really sick and couldn't do a fun thing, you would totally stay with me and, like, watch Drag Race. Would you want me to stay behind with you? Is that what our friendship is? You're going to limit my enjoyment? No, but you would offer, and I would be like, no, you should go. And it would create clarity for both of us. But you would offer. They don't even offer. Mm Mm-hmm. But Hermione can get a little obsessive about things and lose that great empathy that we love about her. And where I see that very clearly is that she is desperate to hate on divination and to, like, prove that divination is a fraud. When Lavender's pet rabbit dies and she and Pavardi are like, oh, my God, and this is exactly what Professor Trelawney said, this premonition is coming true— Hermione starts investigating whether or not the exact premonition is true. She's so insensitive. To the point where it's like, okay, her rabbit just died. Her baby rabbit just died. And she's saying things like, well, you got it on this day, so it couldn't have actually died on the day that it was predicted. Right. And, like, this is a very interesting intellectual argument, Hermione. But maybe let's empathize and have this conversation later about the values of divination. She is just so tunnel vision and fundamentalist about this. She is not being her best self. Right. She is exhibiting rash or extreme behavior in her desperate desire to undermine divination as a genuine subject, which comes from the fact that she is not good at it. Right. Like this is all about her sense of self-worth being so intricately tied up with, you know, her academic performance. And she's willing to sacrifice like Lavender's sense of sadness. And Hermione's own sense of goodness. Like, one of the things we love so much about Hermione is how empathetic she is. And she is just willing to forgo that part of her in order to have this identity as a good student. I think that it's complicated by the fact that there seems to be confusion within the Harry Potter novels, whether Dumbledore respects divination, whether McGonagall respects divination. It's not just Hermione who has issues with divination. But it is only Hermione that prevents herself from being her best self in order to take down divination. Well, I would add to that list that actually Trelawney is in a complex relationship to the subject of divination because she kind of knows that she's a fraud, right? She is trying to pronounce all sorts of things. She's desperate to prove that it's real by making these grand predictions because, you know, I think ultimately she knows that she is not the seer that she wants to be. She might have had one or two episodes, but like everyday third eye powers, she ain't got them. Really? I think that it's more complicated than that because she does get teary eyed whenever she sees Harry. Do you think that that's a performance or do you think she's worried about Harry and the fact that he might die? I mean, if that's really how she felt, she'd walk around the whole of Hogwarts just in tears the whole time because everyone is going to experience some dramatic loss. I don't know. I feel the same way with Hagrid. Hagrid had this great first lesson planned and it goes disastrously wrong. And so he's so desperate to, like, not get fired that he makes the most boring lesson plans and the students aren't really enjoying it at all. So I, I feel like that desperation is coming from all sorts of places in the staff. After this conversation, I guess I just feel called the next time I feel desperate to try to choose hopefulness. That's, you know, the story of the letter at the very beginning that you told us 
I, I like the idea that even in absolutely desperate moments, we still can keep ourselves from acting out of that desperation. And that's very empowering to me. Casper, this week we're going to do Pardes one last time for a little while. And I thought that we should actually talk about the title of this chapter a little bit. So we know that the fat lady's job is to protect the Gryffindor common room. And the end of the chapter, all of the Gryffindors are coming home from the Halloween feast and she's gone and her portrait is slashed. So the sentence that I want us to look at is actually something that Peeves says. And Peeves says, ashamed your headship, sir, doesn't want to be seen. She's a horrible mess. So what is the shot of this sentence? So, I mean, what's happening here is that all the Gryffindor students have come back to the common room and no one can get in. And it's not that they've forgotten the password. You know, the fat lady has been attacked and she's escaped. Dumbledore arrives on the scene and says to Peeves, what's going on? And then Peeves said, you know, she's she's run away. She's ashamed. So all the students are kind of watching this moment of real drama as the fat lady is somewhere hiding in a portrait somewhere in the castle. What is the remez of this? So, first of all, I just want to acknowledge that as we are new to Pardes, we, a couple of weeks ago, we did this great practice of tracing one image or word throughout the text in the drosh section instead of the remez section. And then last week we did it in remez, which is correct. And we are going to be doing it in remez, as is correct, again today. I feel like as long as we're doing close reading, you know, one way or another to get there is fine. But I do want to acknowledge we've been a little inconsistent. So if you're confused, that's why. So what word jumps out at you? Ashamed your headship, sir. Doesn't want to be seen. She's a horrible mess. Yeah, the remez is really where we're looking for a hint, you know, where we're looking for something underneath the literal meaning of the text. So, you know, I'm just thinking of other times where the portraits have played a really important part. And earlier in this book, we met Sir Cadogan. Um, so we've got that word sir here, right? Just like Peeves is saying, your headship, sir. And secondly, we've got a kind of portrait character that's moving, right? Cadogan has got his sword stuck, sure, but like he's able to move and he's kind of guiding the students how to get to the North Tower. So there's something there. And it's interesting that we see the fat lady here is ashamed. And Cadogan was also kind of really talking about honor when he was he thought he was being challenged to a sort of duel by Ron or something. And so there's a lot about perception, sense of self-worth, kind of fleeing or retaliating somehow to a perceived or a very real assault. And with Cadogan, of course, it's totally fake. Here it's very real. Turns out that Sirius is really slashed desperately, I would say, the portrait in order to try and get into the Gryffindor common room. So that's a connection I'm seeing. What about you? What what remez are you finding? What this reminds me of is earlier in this chapter, even when Fred and George are finally serious, this is one of the only moments that Peeves is being completely serious. And he's he's being a little bit silly in the way that he's doing it. He's like sticking his head between his legs. But he is giving Dumbledore real information 
and sort of incisive analysis of what the fat lady is feeling, right? It's not like the fat lady was like, I'm ashamed and ran away. But Peeves is analyzing her behavior and reporting it and is being a good steward of this space. I think it's interesting to see the way that people respond to emergencies, right? And Fred and George aren't really dealing with an emergency with Wood. They're just responding to a friend who seems in care. But I feel like this is a sign that Peeves in an emergency can actually be trusted and called upon to behave with real nobility. I love that because to me that foreshadows the Battle of Hogwarts. And the connection between Fred and George and Peeves, right? One of the last things that Fred and George say when they leave Hogwarts, I think maybe the last thing they say, is give her hell, Peeves. So I feel like there's a connection between the three of them for like havoc wreaking and just like troublemaking. But there's also a connection that in moments of desperation, they will rise above. So... Drush is the the third layer of Pardes. And this is really, it's kind of like a mini sermon. Like, what's the meaning-making part? What's the meaning that you find in this? What's the teaching moment? The teaching moment to me is, I mean, that first word, ashamed. I mean, it's just victim-blaming. The fat lady was attacked. She was attacked for doing a good job at her job. Sirius wanted to be let in, and she was like, nope, what's the password? I'm not going to let you in. And he threatened her, and she still said, no, you cannot come in. And so he attacked her. And her response to being attacked for doing her job well is a sense of shame. And if I was to preach a sermon on the parsha or like the selection of reading for this week and it was the sentence, I think what I would talk about is inviting people to be curious when they feel shame, if that is a fair thing to sort of be accusing themselves of or if there's something else that's going on and inviting people to forgive themselves. What about you? I'm struck by what you say and I'm also suddenly thinking the only way we learn that she might feel ashamed is of what Peeves said. Like, maybe she's not ashamed. Maybe he thinks she should feel ashamed because in the slashing, I always kind of imagine that some of her clothing tears or something, that this has to do with, like, a naked body, and so she is running, perhaps not fully clothed. I don't know, maybe this is just, like, another man shaming a woman for her body. I mean, I get struck in this scene that Dumbledore comes and is like, what happened to the fat lady? I assumed for some reason that was like what the kids called her. But then Dumbledore would come and he'd be like, what happened to Theodosia? Or like, you know, like know her real name. And even he just calls her the fat lady. So there does seem to be this like shaming around this character. I think that that is another really interesting thing, is he prescribing shame to her that she should not feel. Maybe she ran out of fear, not shame. Casper, the next step in Pardes is sewed, and that is where we sort of sit in silence for a moment and wonder if there is a secret that is revealed to us in the text. And so I'll just read it one more time. Ashamed your headship, sir. Doesn't want to be seen. She's a horrible mess. Casper, a sewed moment that is sticking out to me is that because of this terrible thing that happened, it occurs to me that the kids are still stuck outside even though the fat lady isn't there, which means that her job is not to keep people out. The like infrastructure of the wall does that. Her job is to let people in. It's a job of welcoming, right? Yeah. 
I think the sode for me is that, you know, we, this whole book, we think of Sirius as this dangerous, uh, frightening figure. And this seems to add to the story, right? The slashing and the violence. Sirius used to be a student. He probably knows the fat lady. She probably knows him. He is just so desperate that what I presume starts as a conversation ends up in this moment of real scary violence. And for me, it's just like this is domestic violence. This is not a stranger danger. Like this this is really the people that we know, people that we love, like that's the most likely person to hurt us. Your sods are sad and mine are hopeful. Who would have thought? It's true. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This week's voicemail is from Sarah, who's calling in from Seattle. Hi, Vanessa and Casper. My name is Sarah, and I'm calling from Seattle. I, like anybody with good sense, love your podcast. I have burned through the first two seasons in about a week and a half, and I just cannot wait to hear more. I already have my ticket to the live show when you come to Seattle. I just listened to the chapter on mercy, and I'm really curious, as I was listening to it, I kept thinking all of the acts that you were talking about, Hermione writing to Harry and and Hagrid and Ron and Hermione sending presents and cards to Harry on his birthday as being mercies, and to me, they just sound like kindness and friendship. And so I'm really curious about where the distinction between mercy and kindness is. To me, I guess mercy seems like something that's bigger or more gracious or maybe something that you bestow upon someone who perhaps doesn't deserve it. Um, But kindness and friendship is sort of earned relationally, right? Like you create relationships with people and you want to be kind to them sort of on a regular basis. Um, so I'm having trouble creating the distinction and determining 
if there is a distinction or not, and I was hoping maybe you two could talk about it and help clear it up for me. Thank you. I love your podcast, and I cannot wait to see you in a few weeks. So, Sarah, I think that so much of what a mercy is is in how it is received. And so I just wonder if the reason that, for example, a birthday card is a mercy for Harry is because he's never received birthday cards before. So I wonder, and Casper, I'd be interested as to what you have to say. I absolutely think these birthday cards are a kindness and are just part of friendship. But I wonder if because of who Harry is, they are also a mercy. I don't think that these things have to be one thing. I also think that sometimes birthday cards can be none of those things. What do you think, Casper? Yeah, I agree with that. But I do think Sarah's got a point in that, you know, they are kind of overlapping terms. And I guess, you know, one of the potential downfalls of reading a chapter through a theme is that we we start using that language to describe something that we could use other language for. But I don't think that's a bad thing, you know? And I think that with something like mercy, which is not a word that I use every day, that it's kind of good to look for it, to look for where I can find mercy, because we probably need more of it in the world. Yeah, Casper, I think that that's so important. Ever since we recorded that episode, I have found myself being more open to, you know, mercies in my life. And so I don't think there's any harm in seeing it a little too much and that it has made my eye keener to notice it when it comes into my life. Mm. Thank you, Sarah. I'm really excited to see you in Seattle. Come up and say hi. Vanessa, who are you blessing this week? This week I want to bless Neville Longbottom's grandmother, Um, Neville has this moment where he's scared that he has lost his Hogsmeade permission slip and raises his hand and McGonagall says, don't worry about it, Longbottom. Your grandmother thought you might forget it and sent it in. And I just think sometimes you embrace that you can't change a person and you just help him out. Like Neville is a wonderful human being and he's just always going to be forgetful. So I would like to offer Grandma Longbottom a blessing for just taking care of Neville, not giving him a hard time about it, not even telling him, like, you forgot something again, but just taking care of something. I think every once in a while, you just need to help someone out. So I would like to thank and bless Grandma Longbottom for that. Casper, who would you like to bless today? I'm going to bless Professor Flitwick. It's just for a fleeting moment, but Professor Lupin is sitting next to him at the feast. And the text tells us that Professor Lupin looked cheerful, and as well as he ever did, he was talking animatedly to little Professor Flitwick, the charms teacher. And I so appreciate someone who's a good conversationalist. It makes time pass by. You learn new things. You just feel like you're on a different plane of existence if you're in a good conversation. And that takes some skill. So props to Professor Flitwick and anyone who helps maybe an arduous, boring moment pass with a good story. You're welcome. (laughs) You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Do join us at one of our live shows this summer in Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Philadelphia, New York City, and Washington, D.C. You can buy your tickets on harrypottersacredtext.com. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and Facebook, and leave us a review on iTunes. We always really like to read those. Next week, we'll read Chapter 9, Grim Defeat, through the theme of frustration. 
This episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text was produced by Ariana Nettleman, Casper Turkile, and me, Vanessa Zoltan. Our music is by Ivan Kaizau and Nick Bull, and we are part of the Panoply Network. You can find ours and other great shows at panoply.fm. Thanks to our crowdfunder donor of the week, Michaela Ungerleider. Thanks to Sarah this week for sending in her voicemail. Thanks also to Rebecca and Charlie Ledley and to Stephanie Purcell. We'll see you all next week. Um, and so that that kind of desperation, isolation, hairball soup is really true here as well. What are the other ingredients in hairball soup? Is it a chicken base or like a vegetable base? Oh, it's definitely vegetable broth. Um, yeah, it's maybe like some turnips. If it's hairball soup, is it vegetarian? It's vegetarian, but not vegan. Correct. <laughs> okay, good. Glad we have that sorted out.